Hello, everybody, and welcome back. And we are very fortunate today to have a um, a repeat customer, a friend who's revisited the town, Elena Dorfman. How you doing today? Hey, Dan. Doing well. And Elena was in town, and I thought it would be a really good opportunity for us to actually talk together about uh, a little thing that we have coming up, which is a workshop in the spring of 2022 in Albania and beyond, because potentially this is going to be something that we end up doing more than once. And so uh, what we've done is I've, I've come up with a list of questions that I want to ask her and vice versa. So we are going to, uh, to just jump right in and start talking about the workshop that we're going to teach, but it's more than that. It's about sort of the ideology behind how something like this would come together and also what to expect and also how to kind of look at a workshop in, in ways that you may not first think about on the surface. So with that in mind... How about a first question? Are you ready? I'm ready. You're, you're totally ready? Hit me. Do, do a test one, two, three for me. One, two, three. One, oh, two, three. That. Yeah. I just, uh, I just wanted to have that in the recording at some point. So, okay. Let's go back to 2019, which is the year that I took the, I went to Albania to take your workshop. But before I got there, when I decided to take the workshop, I started telling people, or people would find out that I was about to go on vacation and they would say, hey, what are you doing on your vacation? And I said, oh, I'm going to go to Albania and take a workshop. And the response was actually absolutely bizarre. I had people ask me where in South America Albania was. I had people ask uh, why I wanted to go to Russia. And it was, it was kind of somewhat of a surprise in America to have that. But I also live in, I live in New Mexico where a lot of people don't seem to understand it's part of the United States. So... It wasn't that uncommon. But how on earth did you find Albania? How did, how did this whole thing come to be? Before you even began remotely thinking about teaching workshops over there, you have a very specific connection to this place. And let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, my connection is that my, my grandparents came from Albania, so I'm half Albanian. And it's interesting because, so I was raised in the Northeast and where a lot of Albanians immigrated to. So... Um, so my grandparents were born in Albania, and I grew up in the Northeast in a little bit of an Albanian community. So my relatives, of course, were Albanian. My mother was Albanian. So I'm half Albanian. However, Albania was, uh, for 50 years, like North Korea is today. So it was completely isolated. So when my grandparents left, no one could ever go back. So I grew up with an Albanian. You know, being half Albanian, but never being able to access the country, never, you know, um, being able to see the place that that was talked to me about when I was a kid, was spoken about when I was a kid. So it was always this mythical place, uh, and you could not get in. It was sealed tight. So we sent, you know, the story I frequently tell is that we st we sent cards, letters, money, everything in. Um, of course, I didn't do it for 50 years, but for 50 years, my family members sent things back to their relatives who they could not see, and we never got any response, nothing. So because it was a totalitarian um, dictatorship, they couldn't send anything out. When I first went, not the first minute, Albania was the last country to fall. Mm -hmm. um, so it, most were 1989. Albania was 91. Um, and I went in the early spring of 93. So I went pretty, pretty as quickly as I could get there. Um, and then when I met my family, extended family for the first time, 
you know, all the cards and letters and pictures we'd sent over the years were framed and hanging on the wall. God, that is just unbelievable. It was extraordinary. And we looked alike, of course. And it was a place that I found so captivating. And of course, because I couldn't get to it for 50 years, you know, I, it was a it was a, a land that could not be accessed. So sure. as a kid, I wanted to know more about it, which has led now into a nearly 30-year, you know, expedition. So I go back very frequently and know the country really well. You just came back, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I spent the month of October there working on a totally separate project. And how are things on the uh, on the street in Albania right now? They're, they're good. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening is, as you know, even from 2019, when you were there, it's really changing. I'm seeing it just transform, which in a way is wonderful because it's a country that could use um, an injection of help, financial help, tourism. Mm -hmm. It's it's a really extraordinary place because it's very small. It's still not well known. You know, as you said, people are thinking Armenia, Azerbaijan, where, yeah. you know, they don't have any idea where it is, which is a good thing and, and not such a good thing. So it's, it's great because it's kept them um, uh, pristine. Yeah. Although now, you know, the landscape is pristine. It's Gorgeous waterfalls, beautiful rivers, wild rivers, you know, incredible mountain scenery. It really, two UNESCO heritage cities. It's really got a great mix. And Tirana, the capital, is, is, is really growing. It's, it's exploding. So it's a cool city. It's like the city of cool, new and cool. And so now is really the time because the transition is in, is in full effect. Full and, effect. And that's what it felt like to me. It felt like in 2019 that someone had opened the front door, yeah. but not really nobody had gone inside or outside to, to in any great volume. And it just felt like, wow, it's, it's a country that's still almost trying to, to self-identify and say, wow, we kind of, you know, I guess it's that thing. If, you, if you've been under lock and key for 50 years and someone opens the front door, there's that moment of hesitation, like, am I supposed to go through there? And do I actually want to go through there? And what happens when I go through there? So that was one of the fascinating things for me was like looking at, looking at that. And I was completely naive, although it just reminded me, I did read a book in college, and I can't remember the title of it, but it was about the five remaining countries on earth yeah. that were like completely off the map. And, right. I, and I remember... You know, North Korea was the obvious one, but I remember looking at Albania and thinking, I just don't know. I literally know nothing about this. And then I've seen a lot of people confuse the Baltics and the Balkans, yes. where that's sort of interchangeably tossed yes, around. Yes, that's true. And so for me, it's it's a to revisit in 2022 after being there in 2019. For me, that's always been my style of, of work is go back to the same place over and over again. I'm not one of these, I count countries and I, you know, I'm going to cross the border for 20 minutes and be able to tell people I went to El Salvador. It's like, if, if I want to go to El Salvador, I want to go back and back. So I'm very curious the changes, even in a place like, I can imagine the hotel that we stayed in Toronto in, a, in that immediate area. What's the, what's the name of the pyramid building? It's called the pyramid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I went to public school. <laughs> I nailed that. And that was like, when we saw it in 2019, that was... It was abandoned. It was like a ruin. Right. So it's a ruin, and it's kind of the, the national symbol of the country in a way. So the pyramid was built by the former dictator. His name was Enver Hoxha, by his daughter, who was an architect. And it's a building that, if you look at it from the sky, is shaped like a communist star. Ooh, interesting. So it's called the pyramid because each, each, each point of the star is, a, is an incline, is a... What's the word? It's a, a slope. Know, a slope. And so it's built around five. The building is five slopes. And so 
people, it, it resembles from each vantage point a pyramid. And for many, many, many years, Albanians, certainly they didn't do it when he was alive, but when Hoxha died, kind of in, in, as a rebellious move, people started to run up and down the sides of the what was then granite building. Okay. So the building used to be, it was made in, in a beautiful granite because Albania is full of natural resources and stone is one of them. So they built this incredible building called the Pyramid. It then they talked about destroying it. Should we get rid of it? You know, Albania has a little bit of a problem of wanting to um, to get rid of its past, really hide sure. it. And so that's what's interesting about this moment in time and what I'm seeing transform so rapidly, which is why now and the next few years is a good time to see the country because it's starting to really transition. And their monuments that they didn't want to look at and that they abandoned, they're now starting to say, okay, that building, that pyramid building that everybody ran up and down for 30 years and we left to crumble, we're now going to turn it into an educational center. So finally, uh -huh. it was a nightclub. It was a whatever, something else, many iterations. It has never really been opened except for the brief period of time it was a nightclub, but now it'll be, they're really transforming it into an educational center. So the, even in 2016, the, the headquarters of the secret police, the Sigurimi, that had not even been transformed. It was as it was when the country fell in 1991. It stayed that way for 25 years until wow. they said to this Italian architect, Elizabeth Terrani, we've got this building full of objects. Would you like to potentially do something with it that would become a national museum? So now a really interesting um, element of Tirana is this House of Leaves. And it was called the House of Leaves because that's what they called it, not to say the secret police headquarters. It was like a surreptitious name, the House of Leaves. It's covered in leaves. And now it's a national museum where people can go in and see you know, the history of the country under dictatorship. So you can read the stories of people who were, you know, who were, who were tortured. Frankly, it was a, it was a country, uh, yeah. it was a, it was a dicta dictatorship that, and everything that came with it. There were lots of work camps. There were films that were made about, um, you know, throughout the years of what the country was like. You can go in and see the films. You can read the testimonies from people. You can see um, what, even what apartments looked like during communism. And a really interesting part of this particular museum is that you can, um, all the technology, you know, the Albanians oh, yeah. were crazy with surveillance. Yeah. They were like, even though they were as, as poor as could come, they put all, a lot of their money into technology and surveillance. So you can see all the tiny, tiny cameras that they created to spy on people, the, the um, recording devices they used to spy on people through the decades. It so was pretty sophisticated, too, yes. and, and comprehensive. Yes. One of the best parts of being there for me had nothing to do with photography. It had everything to do with talking to the Albanians that you introduced us to. And those conversations, actually, I took a lot of that dialogue and ended up using it in the little publication that I made. But it was talking to someone who said, you know, oh, if you and I went to someone's house at night, you and I would have the same clothes. There were there was like one set of clothes That's in brown right. and black, and you either got one or the other. And so you'd walk into the to someone's house, and all the men, you know, for example, would all be in the exact same outfit. It might be a slightly different shade, but it was like, hey, there's one pair of shoes, there's one pair of pants, there's one shirt, and the food shortages, and yes. and the the differences between Soviet sort of occupation and the Chinese occupation, and the differences in food shortages and. One of the guys in particular that, that I had spoken to was a vegetarian uh, from birth, basically. He just never liked meat. 
and his family was thrilled because they were like, oh, there's a food shortage anyway, and you're not going to eat meat, you're not going to drink the milk, but you can stand in line to, to help right. get it Everything because was lines. we had to have somebody in line like 24 hours a day and then hope when your number got called that they actually had any food left over. So it was um, that to me was, was a fascinating part of being there. Let's talk a little bit um, about the logistics of a workshop because – Photo workshops to me, there's a lot of photo workshops being taught now all over the place. You have individuals, you have organizations teaching workshops. And I think sometimes, well, first of all, there's many different flavors of workshop. You have workshops where people sit around and talk about gear all day long, which is definitely not what this was in 19 and not what you and I are going to do in 2020. But logistically for me, when I think about a workshop, if I and I'm not necessarily a person who like always sets a hard and fast goal with a workshop, but when you think about a workshop, if I gave you a list of things, let's say number one is building a portfolio, number two is just making a single great image, number three would be potentially learning how to tell a story with photographs as opposed to just shooting one thing at a time, or just the idea that you're allowing your brain to think in a creative way that it may not get a chance to during your quote unquote normal life is how is your, what is your philosophy in regards to those kind of things? Because I think sometimes people put unrealistic expectations on themselves. They'll say, Oh, I'm going to take this workshop. I've never been to this country. I don't speak the language. I don't really know that much about it. I need to come out of there with like 25 unbelievable images. Cause I want to do a book or whatever. And you're kind of like, well, that's going to be tricky, and you also don't want to like disappoint yourself and get over there, have your be under a lot of pressure or stress to do that. So, what, what's success for you when it comes to taking a workshop and teaching? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, I think what's what workshops are really the strengths of workshops is that, as you said, you can leave your life behind and focus entirely on one thing. In this case making pictures. If you paint, you can come and paint. If you want to make vi- shoot video, you can shoot video. We are there to support that and to offer our um, collective and individual experience. So a workshop to me, I think it's helpful to come with an idea of what you'd like to potentially get out of it because that can be broken. You can, you can, start, you can start down that road and then you can say, you know what, actually I thought I wanted to come and shoot people in this country, but in fact, the architecture is really calling to me. Great, we take you to places where you can both shoot people, you can shoot architecture, you can shoot um, food if you want to. You know, we're the job. I think the, I think a perfect workshop is when you are allowed to just let your creativity unfold in a supportive environment. So you have both two people who can give you private help and instruction, and a critical component of a workshop, and why. I would choose a workshop rather sometimes rather than going out on my own shooting sometimes is the group dynamic can be incredibly helpful. You, we have critiques a number of nights and days while we're working. So we're traveling, we're exploring and adventuring, as I like to say. We're discovering both with my knowledge of the country and with local people, local mm-hmm. guides, not only guides, but friends of mine who live there who are Albanian who show us places that most people don't get to go. And we have regular, I, th- I think having the regular conversations about work is really where the growth happens. I was going to say, so one of the other questions I had was, um, and this, I don't know if this is really m- more of a question or a statement, but 
the first workshop I took was in 1997 at the Santa Fe workshops. And I was working for Kodak at the time. And my boss called me and I thought he was joking, but he called and said, you know, we get free workshops. We'll send you to Santa Fe. We'll pay for everything and you can take a workshop. And I was like, oh, you know, waiting for the punchline. And he's like, I'm not kidding. And oh, by the way, no one in the company has signed up. So like you, you're the only one who's going to go. So I ended up taking this workshop and it was from a photographer who I had really liked for a long time. And I was like, okay, and I'm, you know, my sort of battle plan going into this workshop was I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And then I got there, and what happened almost immediately was the other people in the workshop, there was one in particular who looked at my work, I'd never seen this person before, looked at my work and said something profound in terms of not the actual photographs, but do you know, based on the, the fact that you have this kind of work, do you know that you can do this other kind of photography and you could make 20,000, 30,000 a day. And I was like, what are you talking about? I literally quit my job. That, I took this workshop. I don't remember a single picture I did during that entire workshop. But I came home and told Amy, told my wife, look, um, this is, uh, we're, I'm now taking evasive action. I, my plan is in place. I'm going to leave Kodak and I'm going to do this. That came from taking workshop. had nothing to do with photography. And so when I went to Albania in 2019, what you just mentioned a minute ago is sometimes you can break the plan that you have going in. And one of the things that I, I learned from newspaper photographers a long time ago was when I would get assignments in newspapers and I would sit there start and I'd start pre-visualizing. And the old timers would go, don't do it because it's never going to look like what you think it's going to look like. And then you're going to get there and you're either going to be disappointed or you're going to be thrown off guard. Just go and react. So when we went in 2019, I had an idea of what I was going to do. And I had to change it almost at the, the morning of the first day, walking around the streets of Toronto. I was like, mm, that's not quite right. I have to morph this. And that unlocked like the best resulting next 10 days or 12 days was fantastic because I was able to adapt. And I think, I mean, from your perspective, that's, it's a pretty common, safe, fun way of working is to yes, do a little a homework up front, but not overdo it and like pigeonhole yourself into like committing to something that you can't follow through with. I mean, I think always the thing when taking pictures and starting either a, a, a self, you know, a self-motivated assignment or working for someone else is you, you, you're confident in your gear and you walk into a situation and you think, this is how I'm going to approach it, or I'm going to try it in this way, and then I'm going to try it another way, and then I'm going to try it another way. I mean, I think what, what we bring together to this is I have many years um, as professional, as an editorial and fine art photographer, and you as a journalist, storyteller, bookmaker, journalist, you know, uh, yeah. writer, it's a really interesting combination. And so everybody certainly doesn't have to come if you come with one of those things. And if you frankly just come with an open mind and a desire yeah. to have an adventure, you're going to have a great trip. Agreed. You know? Let's let's talk a little bit about just logistics for a second, because one of the questions I get a lot about workshops is, what would you, if you had to put a percentage on it, rough percentage, the ratio of shooting time versus moving time versus reviewing time? Mm -hmm. So Good because question. because to your to your earlier point, I had no idea the Albanians had Alps. So like when I heard Albanian Alps, I was like, uh, what are you talking about? And when we were flying from like uh, whether it was Frankfurt or Milan into Tirana, you're like, you're flying over some of the most beautiful country and full on alpine conditions, snow, snow covered peaks. And I was like, oh, there's another mountain range here that I didn't know anything about. So you've got that, you've got urban environments, and then you have that middle distance environment, which I found that's sort of my sweet spot for photography is that middle distance area. So you've got all of that, but you have to get there. 
and then we have to shoot and we have to review. So what, if you had to put a percentage on that, like, what do you think it would be? Well, first of all, so we're, there are two trips happening. The first trip I kind of qualify as the South. We're going to mm-hmm. run a trip to the South. And then the second trip a week later and all the, the dates are on the website. Dan can, maybe you can list the dates. Yeah, I'll underneath. link to the website as well. So we have two trips going. One is to the South and one is to the North because the distant, because Albania is still just coming out of its, uh, even though it's 30 years, they're still building roads and they're still making uh, certain places accessible. The north is far less accessible than the south, but what I've tried to do is plan a trip where, bo- in both cases, north and south, we are, we're, we're moving, but we're, we're taking time in one place as well. So we, it, it, both trips cover Tirana, of course, because it's a very interesting city. Um, let's take the southern trip, which is the first trip next year. Uh, we then go to a second city called Korcha, which has a totally different vibe. It's near the Macedonian border. And we, we spend three days in uh, Korcha. So we have, a, we have time to start working on the books, to shoot in and around Korcha. Each day we take a day trip and we go to a totally different place and we come back to the same actually fabulous hotel. That's nice. And we eat, and we talk, and we go over the work, and we start laying out our books, we start editing, we start pairing pictures, sequencing, talking, getting to know each other. After three days, we move on to a totally different place, and for the next couple of days, we do that as well. So there's time when we're on the move, shooting, each location is varied and different, so mm-hmm. you have something to come out of it with. And then in the evenings, late afternoon, early evening, before or after dinner, we do our critiques. In the mornings, we do our book sequencing or vice versa. So I'd say it's sh- we're primarily shooting during the day. We're traveling in the mornings, usually early in the morning, so we get somewhere and we have th- enough time to explore. Yep. The same is true in the north. Um, we leave from Tirana. We move up through your favorite city, Port City, Duras. Oh, the, yeah. The south beach of Albania. Oh, yeah. For great photographs. And then we slowly we get on a ferry, a gorgeous ferry, uh, for a few hours. And we go into the Alps, which are really spectacularly beautiful. We move into the Alps and we stay in the Alps in these beautiful little inns for three nights where we do the same. We shoot, we walk, we work, we discuss, we practice, we lay out the books. We have time. And then we move around the country slowly back down to the south through um, a beautiful agro-tourism farm uh, and other smaller cities that are equally interesting. Yeah, I think it's a, to me, it felt in 2019, it, it felt like a really good blend of time on the move and also seeing all these different places. I loved Lake Shkodra, for yes, example. Yes. Doris was hilarious, but yes. also photographically for me, that was um, one of my favorites for sure. And then just being up in the Alps, but also the time in the van was hilarious. And so the, van time. the streets that and the roads that you're on um, were fantastic. I mean, as a cyclist, I looked at Albania and was just drooling because there's so many great roads to ride and then listening to some of the other folks who'd actually been to Albania before and actually cycle toured there. I was so jealous of the whole thing. But so I think that's pretty, um, that's covered most of the questions that I have. Um, if you were going to, the last one is if you were going to describe the culture of Albania it, in a, in a sort of, uh, very basic description, what, what would that be? I mean, so I'll try to sum it up as best I can. So it's, you know, Albania borders um, 
it, it's it's across the Ionian and Adriatic from Italy. Mm-hmm. So it's the culture is it's very Italian focused. It's very similar. It in a lot of ways it takes its cues from Italy, also from Greece. However, it was occupied by the Turks for a long, long time. So it has a Turkish influence, and it's um, uh, I would say a mix of kind of Turkish, Greek, and and Italian. Um, you know it it. it Geographically, it's pretty spectacular. I know I'm going to get back to the culture of the people, but it is surrounded by three seas. So it's the Ionian, the Mediterranean, and the Adriatic, and this spectacular mountain range. And the mountains are called the Accursed Mountains, which are kind of perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sets the tone for sets what, the tone. what went. And, and is that directly linked to the fact that so many people tried to get over those mountains to get out during the dictatorship? Yes, it's yes, the Accursed Mountains, called the Albanian Alps or the Accursed Mountain Range. And so the culture is, is the city, the Tirana, which is the most kind of happening, mm-hmm. newest, most vibrant city, it's full of, you know, young cosmopolitan people. Um, young and old, of course, not just young. The other cities are slower to develop, so they're a bit more traditional. Korcha, the culture of Korcha is uh, kind of a more highly cultured um, region, incredible food. The, I have to, you can't talk about Albania without talking about the food, which is, again, a, a combination of kind of Greek and Turkish and with lots of Italian influence. The food is great. Yeah. Homemade. Um, natural. It's not. They're not loaded on preservatives. They. I don't even know if they necessarily have a fast food restaurant. When I was there in October, a friend from Spain came to visit me, and he said, "Where's the Zara? Where's the Where's the Forever Twenty One? And they do yeah. not exist. They don't exist. So it's still, it's still a a a, um, a culture of you know no big boxes. It's still very undiscovered." It's still, it's unexplored, and yet it's on the verge of being explored. The people are extremely nice, extremely kind. Yeah. Um, it also has, you know, gangsters and uh, all the rest. You know, yeah. it's, it's uh, it learned, it learned, uh, it learned from Sicily. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, everybody's heard the, the stories of Albanian, the Albanian gangsters and uh, some of that stuff. But I have to say... You know, again, when we got there, I didn't really, I did a little research, figured out a, a technique that I thought I was going to do photographically. And then I, as I mentioned, I had to change that at the beginning of the first, the first morning. But as we were walking around Toronto, there were like sort of, you know, how you're walking through the city, you come to a section where you can feel that the vibe has changed. And then typically you look past that section and you go, all I know is I'm not going down there. But in Albania, in, in Toronto, I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to just keep walking down there and kind of see what happens. And I never once did I look around and go, oh, this feels sketchy or whatever. I'm sure there's sketchy places I could find, but I was, I was just kind of amazed. I'm, I'm always amazed that there's far more sketchy places here. I mean, I've been absolutely terrified in America, more than a few American cities where I'm like, oh, I'm in big trouble if I stay here. I never really felt that, but that's a good description. Italy, Greek, um, Italian, Greek. And, um, and also to me, the other interesting part is the a little bit of the residue of the surrounding Balkan countries. And mm-hmm. last time yes. we, we, we snuck into Kosovo for a day. We didn't yes. literally snuck in. We actually crossed the border legit. We drove in. We drove in and looked around. And I was like, God, because for me as a photographer, when I was when I was coming up, the you know the war in the Balkans was front and center every day. And these were the photographers that I was following every day when I was going to UT Austin and like watching the news and the Chris Morris's and Ron Haviv's of the world. And I was like, and that's really for me, what put the Balkans on the map for me was, was the war. And to be able to go in and sort of see some of these uh, places was just for me 
fantastic. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think also, you know, t- in following up with what you're saying, I think the interesting, the interesting and unusual, the reason Albania is unusual is that it has this 50-year history of of, of being a, a total being isolated. It was compl- it was a totalitarian, isolated country. So some of those remnants, of course, are still there, and they're open for exploration. I mean, we visit them, and yet you've got a modernizing country that's, that's pretty interesting and vibrant and, and naturally, environmentally, extremely beautiful, yeah. culturally very rich. So it embodies so much. Well, I think that covers the questions I had. Do you have any questions? I mean, I just wanted to ask you a couple things. We've covered a lot, but like, I just had a question. What do you consider a good day creatively? Oh, you know, just looking at my own portfolio. Yeah, other than you that, know, we mean, know that, that but other a, than that. That's enough inspiration <laughs> for anyone. Uh, a good creative day for me is really about, um, it's about freedom and it's about time, where time, time is probably the single biggest challenge I have. Uh, for example, so I have most most days of the week I have conference calls for work, and that sort of it's almost like putting up a a barbed wire fence through like a natural corridor where all the animals are like, "Hey, what are you doing?" And the conference calls kind of act in the same way where it disjoints everything that I'm doing. So I I don't have time anymore to go into the field and do long term projects because they take an amazing amount of time. So I'm fractured, and often the job that I'm in because I've been in it so long is so interwoven with my personal life that it's hard to separate the two. So even when my brain is trying to decompress from the job and look at something creatively, I'm often, you know, text messages or emails or things are pinging in that, that destroy it. So a good day for me creatively is one where I'm not under a time constraint or deadline. And two, I just have the freedom to think. And I think one of the problems that I had as a photographer for so long was I was so myopically focused on photographs that I forgot everything else in my life. And I forgot I had all these other interests and I had other skills that I hadn't touched in 25 years. And so going to Albania in 2019, I had a general idea of what I wanted to do, but I was just there. It it literally felt like a relief of, I'm going to, I remember I I had my laptop with me and I did use the laptop to make, to make the books, but I turned my phone off and just put it in my suitcase. And for the most part, the computer was off and in my suitcase and I wasn't online all the time. I was just building in Blur Bookwright and you don't have to be online. So I was just disconnected for that time, and it was like hitting a reset button, not only mentally, but like physically, of just getting away from the normal tethers at home. That's a good creative day. And also, my expectation level is what I would call very realistic. If I can do a a single thing in a given day, whether that's write something that I look at and say that's good, or I make a single image, or I even have a thought about something I might do potentially in the future, that feels like a huge win at this point. Is that is that sad, or is that... No, no, I'm uh, with you. I'm okay. with you. all right, good. <laughs> I think yeah. you're speaking to a lot of us, actually. <laughs> and then I guess a question I wanted to ask you is, what do you hope the participants who come with us get out of it? I hope that they have, uh, that they come away with two things. One would be ethereal, and one would be physically concrete. As, as physically and concrete as like a digital photograph can be until it's until it's in print. But and let's maybe the magazine that they're making that we're going to make in real time, that could be the physical object that they're walking away from, which is a combination of their what I would call creative success in the field. Whatever content is in there, that's the physical creative success of what's going to end up in this in this print piece. 
But I, I honestly think the other part of it, the sort of mental ethereal part is, is more important. And I think giving yourself, and I hope that they give themselves a chance to forget everything they know and start over just by looking at face value of what's in front of them and reacting to what's there. Because again, I think our culture, our society, and the tools that we have on a daily basis are so invasive. We were talking about this before we started recording. I mean, I get text messages at two in the morning, three in the morning from people who know I live here and they know what time it is here. And they're texting, thinking you're going to text right back at two and three in the morning. And if, when that happens week after week, month after month, year after year, and I think COVID to some degree has amplified all of these things because many of us have been sort of captive audience for quite some time. And so it feels even more invasive now. And to be able to just, um, I forget what the other day I saw, there was somebody who had become stranded somewhere, like on an island or something. And I was like, oh, that just sounds awesome. <laughs> that, that sounds, I know, I know this news report is supposed to be bad, but that sounds really awesome to be just like dropped in the woods for three or four weeks. And you're like, oh, I don't have any email. I don't have any food either, but you know, it's a, it's a win-win. So yeah, that's what I hope they, I hope they give themselves a chance and then I, to, to see the world, think about the world in a different way, and then also come out with something concrete. Cause that makes us all feel like we're winning a little bit. Is it when you, when you make something good and then you, you're literally going to walk, when you get home, you're going to have this physical printed thing from your story, whatever your story is, you're going to have it. Yeah. Whatever your experience was, you're going to have it you're going to be able to see it and have the object in the in the book. Yeah. I th I think the one word to me that's the most important for anybody taking really any workshop is the word story. And so a couple of weeks ago I was reading this book that was recommended to me by someone who is kind of a mentor to me. And it was a book about these tech tech giants who had had, you know, wild financial success and they're, you know, kind of that tech world creative types. And I'm reading this book and I'm, frankly, I wasn't really getting into the book. And I was kind of like, I am, I'm, you know, these guys, you definitely have to commend what these guys have done, but I don't know if these are people I really want to hang out with. And they're talking about all this like st micro strategy about defining a category and being first to market and all the stuff that you would expect from tech. And then buried in this book, three quarters of the way through, three words in a sentence, story is king. And what it meant was, without explicitly them saying it, was not, nothing we're talking about matters unless you have the story mm -hmm. to back it up. Mm -hmm. But they buried it. Like it was like the, the, the journalism term is you buried the lead like three quarters of the way into the book. And I, when I read that, I was like, I don't need to read the rest of this book. Th that is so painfully obvious. And story, every single person that takes this workshop is going to walk away with with a story yes. that's going to be as personal as their fingerprint. Yes, exactly. And my job is to help them put it into the print form. Right. And you and I working together, our job is to put them in the atmosphere. Yeah. To to make to tell whatever story that is. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. It's going to be good. It's going to be good, and that is spring of twenty twenty two. That's the first first setup, the first round. Uh, yes, the first the first trip is uh, actually May twenty seventh to June fourth, and then. Uh, the following week, we have, that's to the south. The following week, we have a northern trip. So all that's posted online. And yeah, please take a look. And it, it's going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to it. And hit me with the website. 
Uh, the website is Wide Angle Photo Tours, T-O-U-R-S, Wide Angle uh, Photo Tours. And if someone wants to get a look at your photography, yes, your work. Yes, you would go to my name, Elena Dorfman. So it's E-L-E-N-A-D-O-R-F-M-A-N.com. That's where all my fine artwork is. All the projects I've done and books I've made are all there. And Wide Angle um, references some of that, but it's primarily about the trips. Awesome. Well, that is um, a little recap of what we have in store and a little history here and a little a little cultural history of the region and the country and the people. So I hope that was helpful. And it's always good to talk to you about this stuff. Yeah. And uh, now we can get get uh, get on to the real work of uh, I think my GoPro battery just died. That's what it sounded like. We now we can get back to looking at my portfolio. Yeah, let's do get that. back to the good things in life. Let's do that. All right. Well, thanks again. And we will talk soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye.